2020, the Earth shifted. A great mass of material collapsed. It flowed over the 1,200 kilometers and at a terrifying rate. We've discovered that even 800 kilometers from the source of, of these avalanches, in 2020, the flow was speeding up. And it, it kind of reached a, a speed of eight meters per second, which is kind of faster than the average kind of running speed. So this thing's really kind of trucking along, carrying a huge amount of sediment. If this landslide had started at the peak of Ben Nevis in Scotland, it would have still been rolling as it hit London. Collapses like this can leave sediment 120 metres deep, about three quarters of the height of the BT Tower in London. This would have been a civilization-threatening catastrophe, with casualty numbers in the tens of millions. But this landslide didn't happen on land. We happened to have a number of sensors trying to measure these sorts of flows. They started popping to the surface. So my colleague Pete Talling uh, at University of Durham started getting text messages telling him something's not quite right. Your, your sensor that should be on the seafloor is now at the surface. And they started coming up to the surface progressively into deep water. This was a subsea avalanche. The material spread across the seafloor originated in the Congo River. The Congo River has this huge catchment uh, draining a significant part of continental Africa. Huge amounts of sediment get washed through that. They run out through the river and then they need to go somewhere. So many of the world's big river systems, uh, like the Indus, for example, that, that drains a significant part of the Himalaya, um, it spits out into the Indus Canyon. Uh, and at the end of these canyon systems, like in the Congo and the Indus, you get huge accumulations of sediment in the deep sea called submarine fans, and these are the largest accumulations of sediment anywhere on the face of our planet. But while the sediment may not have buried any cities, it did cause significant damage. And then we were contacted by cable companies that we had worked with before who said, do you know what's happening in the Congo Canyon? We've just lost connection. So at that point, the, the repair company was contacted, um, and so the, the vessel was, was mobilised to get it out on site to start the repairs. The challenge is that multiple cable systems had gone down almost at the same time. So in, in, in that instance, there was a significant impact to the, the broadband connectivity during the first COVID-19 lockdown, uh, all the way from West to South Africa. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. For this week's episode, we've partnered with Fugro to look at the world of subsea cabling. Today, our economy is moving into the cloud. Our energy systems are switching to renewables. And that means all of our lives are at risk of disruption when a subsea avalanche occurs. The Congo Canyon subsea landslide severed cables all along sub-Saharan Africa's Atlantic coast. This happened in a region where the smartphone has in recent decades become central to life. Smartphones provide payment systems for the unbanked. They offer a lifeline to public services and information. And this was all happening at the same time as a devastating pandemic. But this happened on the coast of one of the world's biggest landmasses. As Dr. Michael Clare, who we heard from in the intro, explains, the impacts can be even more devastating on remote islands. 
Michael is a marine geoscience researcher who also works with the International Cable Protection Committee. In December 2021, Hunga Tonga Hunga Harpai, a subsea volcano in the Pacific, began to erupt. As it reached a climax over the following month, a plume of material extended 58 kilometres into the air. The tsunami it caused hit the coast of Japan and the Americas, and a subsequent landslide severed a vital connection. It's particularly important for countries like Tonga, where 50% of their gross domestic product actually comes from remittances from family and friends sent from abroad. So when that sort of event happens, it really has a massive financial and economic impact. The Kingdom of Tonga currently has only one international cable that connects it onto the rest of the internet world. So a cable that connects to Fiji and then Fiji onto Australia. Uh, so in January 2022, when the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcanic eruption happened, a huge amount of material was dumped into the ocean and that created a really powerful avalanche of, of sand which damaged extreme lengths of cables. Uh, in, in some cases, more than 125 kilometers of one cable was either buried or damaged. And that cut Tonga off from the rest of the world, from global communications at a really critical time for disaster response. But also the remoteness of the damage, the extent of the damage, meant that a repair ship, the closest repair ship was in Papua New Guinea. It took five weeks for the international cable to be repaired. The damage to Tonga's sole link to the world cut the island off when it most needed help. It left locals without the financial and emotional support of relatives and friends overseas. For much of the planet, data connections are designed for resilience. As the Congo Canyon landslide hit, work was already underway to lay new cables further out to sea. When the same sort of damage hit again, this kept data flowing. We might think of an internet connection problem as a small thing, Maybe you don't watch Netflix in 4K that evening. Even if a power line is out, most of us can light a candle and enjoy a peaceful night. But for others, like those on Tonga, these services are both vital and fragile. So how have we all come to be tied together by subsea cables? Let's ask someone who really understands the complexities of modern cabling. My role is to look after purely the, um, the yellow bit. That's Matthew Henderson. He's an offshore technical asset manager for SSE Renewables. The yellow bit he refers to is the foundation that supports a wind turbine. His two colleagues look after the white bit, or the turbine itself, and the bits that go buzz, or the electrical components. For everyone on the team, and the millions of people SSE supplies power to, cables are vital. I can give you an example from our most um, recently commissioned wind farm, which is Sea Green. Sea Green has over 300 kilometres of interray cabling just within the wind farm. And then on top of that, there is um, another couple of hundred kilometres which connects it back to shore and then back into the grid itself. So it's an incredibly important and essential part of what we do in generating offshore wind power. The Sea Green wind farm in the North Sea off Scotland opened in 2023. But before Matthew and his colleagues can start thinking about a wind farm's operations, SSE must decide where to place it. Well, um, <laughs> we need to decide where the turbines go first and foremost. So we, we start off with, um, with factors um, which are primarily geotechnical, looking at kind of water depth, looking at kind of rock types. Um, we look at how we position the turbines and then we try and um, 
uh, optimize the the routing for the cabling between those assets and then back to the substation and it means we come across all sorts of different challenges from um, things like sandbanks through to um, unexploded ordnance through to prehistoric riverbeds and that sort of side of things which changes the consistency of the seabed quite notably. Brian Bell is Global Director for Offshore Wind with Fugro. Much of the geodata specialist's work on offshore wind comes out at this initial surveying stage. The initial challenge is understanding the complexity and the conditions of a wind farm site. So as government agencies uh, license out areas of seabed for offshore wind development, developers themselves need to understand what are the site conditions. What is the topography of the seabed? What is the seabed actually made of? Is it soil? Is it rock? Would that be easy to lay or bury uh, an offshore wind cable, for example? Also, developers need to understand how energetic the environment is. Is there a particularly strong uh, tidal climate or, or seabed currents? Is the seabed um, particularly mobile, where sand waves can migrate around the seabed? So if a cable is buried, could it become exposed in future years? And a lot of time and effort is spent trying to characterise sites, as we call them, to understand the seabed conditions, the, the meta-ocean climate, also wind uh, resources as well, to match that with relevant turbine designs and sizes. Once a site is characterised, that information is fed into the design of the wind farm itself. And once those insights are gathered, that starts to provide inspiration for layout concepts. When a developer secures the site, they have various concepts in mind, maybe two or three or, or more, depending upon what experiences they have or what their constraints are. And they then superimpose those concepts onto future site characterization activities. Matthew's job starts when the construction is complete. The first task is to prioritize each cable. So whilst all cables are important, there are some cables which are more important than others. There's some specific cables that carry the, the, the current from sort of up to sort of nine turbines back to the substation, where some cables kind of carry the load of just one cable back, back to the next turbine and onwards. So we obviously use um, criticality um, matrices uh, to identify the most important cables. And we also use various kind of risk factors to identify cables which might have um, more challenges than others as well. And using that, we try and optimise an inspection and maintenance plan. That plan can vary depending on the layout of its cabling. Sea Green is laid out in strands. Our other wind farms actually laid out in loops, which means that we actually have, um, if the furthest turbine away from the substation is connected to another turbine that's quite far away from the substation, and then sort of two parallel strands run back to the substation together, which allows us to actually backfeed generation around uh, the other side of the string, should we require it. Um, at Sea Green, we don't have that because of the, the layout and because we've decided that actually the um, uh, the cost of that extra cabling does not um, outweigh the benefit from that optionality. Once construction is complete, an initial survey is conducted. Earlier, wind farms were typically built on sandbanks. This meant that more surveys could be carried out visually from a boat. In many parts of the wind farm we can monitor visually. We, we, we sail out to the field, we can see what's going on, and we, we have an opportunity to do a kind of point-of-work risk assessment before we access. Cabling is now where we can't redo really a point-of-work risk assessment or because the visibility just simply isn't there. 
but sea green is set in waters that are at some points more than 50 metres deep. For wind farms like this, other tools are needed. These include ROVs, or remotely operated vehicles. ROVs especially are a, um, a, a key part of our armoury and it's a standard sort of um, stopgate in our process post-construction to do um, ROV surveys on, on specific sorts of cables and then we have a rolling programme at five yearly where we do all of the site every five years, primarily at the end of the warranty period and then off the back of that sort of five year sort of period we would then obviously have a really good understanding of the emergent risks we see within the wind farm and from year five onwards towards end of life we instigated a risk-based maintenance program which um, enables us to kind of keep a track on on key factors we would be able to determine what's changed and it may well be that we have a sandbank that's sort of, um, has moved or we have further coverage or lesser coverage of a cable or it may well be that um, we've seen extensive scallop dredging in the area for example we have uncovered quite um, certain amounts of damage during in-use inspections which have allowed us to then sort of um, react and kind of um, and do some sort of repairs in a preemptive sort of manner. The worst case scenario is that we have a, um, a cable failure which we don't preempt and then suddenly we lose generation for up to nine turbines and then we've got to react to um, to re replace either a section or a full length of cable and then bring that sort of string back online again. However we do prefer and it's mostly possible to do a preemptive campaign whereby we can optimise the time of year we actually do a repair and sort of take an outage during a summer period. Other tools can detect errors during operations. These include the SCADA, supervisory control and data acquisition systems on the wind turbines, and sensors built into the cables. We have a number of techniques available to us in that regard. So we use techniques such as distributed temperature sensing, which is, uses fibre optics within the cable itself uh, to help us uh, indicate how the depth of burial of that cable might be changing. So that can be really useful in uh, mobile seabeds. The sandy or silty seabed can move or migrate due to the seabed currents or high energy environments. We also use survey techniques um, such as kind of multi-beam echo sounder and kind of ROV inspections to inspect the cables. Uh, this doesn't come without a cost, of course, but we can kind of prioritise based upon the risk factors which we see like mobility, such as criticality and so on and so forth. Where we see specific challenges with the cable and we have received results we might consider anomalous, we can also do electrical testing such as Lyra. Lyra is line resonance analysis. It can be used to detect faults in cables hundreds of kilometres long. High definition video from vessels and ROVs can also be used to detect and monitor faults. This is used in combination with satellite data connections from Starlink to allow for remote analysis. That allows more experts to contribute to even the trickiest situations. We've recently done ROV inspections on one of our sites where we actually found an unexploded ordnance. And rather than having further personnel actually out on the vessel, this was a manned vessel conducting ROV operations. But we were able to live stream the entire deployment um, on, on our screen via Teams back at the operations base, which meant that when we were talking about the risk profile, we were able to have people kind of flit in and sort of say, well, what about this? Have we considered this? Can we get that angle? 
because this will be key for the removal and the management of the situation. Offshore wind farms can use hundreds of kilometres of cable between arrays and to connect these arrays to shore. Uncrewed surface vessels and remotely operated vehicles are increasingly used here. They can conduct initial site characterization as well as regular inspections. Data cables cover much longer distances. This requires different approaches, with crews at sea for weeks to characterize the seabed. Bastian Wieshand, a permitting manager at Fugro who works on fiber optic cabling, explains some of the challenges. Crossing the Atlantic is then roughly 6,000 kilometers, depending where you start and where you end, whilst crossing the English Channel would be 45, 50 kilometers, right? And then um, there is a portion connecting the shore end to a cable landing station from there then back to the data center. The entire route needs to be characterized. Close to shore, to depths of around 1,500 meters, cables will typically be buried in trenches. Here, developers need to know that the seabed is suitable for digging trenches. They need to work around man-made risks, like fishing. They need to consider the regular movements of the seabed, as well as the impact of landslides, earthquakes and volcanoes. As the cable is laid in the deeper ocean, it sits on the seabed without burial. Here it is important to avoid ridges and boulders that could snag the cable. That's where Fugro then comes in, into play, basically, conducting a marine survey. So uh, we have our vessels and uh, large vessels, smaller vessels, with uh, a lot of equipment, so with geophysical equipment, small to be macro sounders, uh, so bottom profilers, side scan sonars, which basically take a picture of the seabed or, um, um, either by acoustic methods or by optical methods. The investigation can include techniques like cone penetration testing, or CPT. Seabed samples will be taken, and Fugro has recently released a new tool, Blue Snake, that integrates CPT and sampling technology for investigating wind farm cable routes. Much of the deep ocean has been mapped using satellites, but only at low resolutions. For now, route characterization still relies on crude surface vessels. We, we, we have a global model which is based on uh, satellite um, um, technology, but uh, which is, it's a very um, low scale, basically. Smaller objects, which are still large, wouldn't be detected adequately. And so therefore you do the marine survey with certain sensors or, or geophysical equipment to get a, a detailed map of the seabed. And, and there then you can deviate the route so to avoid uh, larger objects or, or whatever, unsuitable seabed conditions, yeah. This requires a constant evaluation of the route, adapting the survey to the results. In the traditional way of a, of a marine route survey, um, you would have your people on board. Um, you have a 24-7 data turnaround where you basically, within 24 hours, you look at your data, which you collected, and you analyze the route, and then you see if that portion is suitable for the installation later on. Uh, in case there might be any issues with that selected route, then it might need route development. So then the vessel has to go back and therefore and, and survey additional areas around or next to the uh, originally planned route. In operation, these deep sea cables can be used to monitor their own condition. I think that there's real opportunities in thinking about uh, minimising the use on vessels for using the cables in and of themselves as a sensing technology. Uh, I think that one 
benefits uh, the cable industry. So there's no need to repurpose the cable. There's no need to add sensors to it. You're using the optical fiber at the core of the cable to identify uh, maybe where you're starting to see the influence of seafloor currents to, to monitor the health status of the cable. So that all fits around a, a kind of a cable protection perspective. In some cases, you can use the, um, the, the technology that's already connected. Uh, in many cases, you, you'd attach what we call an interrogator, something that sends out a signal and that looks at the, the backscatter, the reflected response, and the change from that initial signal that went in versus the thing you get back out, you can look at the difference between that and tell something about how the strain on the cable is changing or the temperature is changing. And then in other more sophisticated approaches, you need to, to plug in like a, an ultra stable laser, which becomes much more ex expensive. And it is probably only gonna happen in a few bespoke situations. But for the most part, this could be done on, on any commercial telecoms cable using pretty standard and relatively low cost technology. These techniques can go further. They can also be used to monitor the ocean itself. The, the added benefits that are complementary to that are the ability to make measurements of how the, the temperature is changing at the seafloor. It's possible to use optical fibers to make distributed measurements, so spatially resolved measurements, in some cases at a one meter horizontal resolution over a distance of 100 or 200 kilometers to record things like the noises that are happening in the ocean that might be created by whales, disturbances that could be created by underwater landslides, uh, tropical cyclones, by earthquakes, and, and, and also to make measurements of some fundamental parameters that tell us how the ocean is changing. So if it is temperature, there are very, very few direct measurements of temperature in the deep sea. In the deep ocean, the cable companies largely have the seabed to themselves. But that's not the case as the cable approaches land. In some areas, I mean, there's not any activity at all from other stakeholders that are planning to, to, to build any infrastructure near or within the same area. The nearer you come to certain uh, landing points and closer to the shore side of life, uh, the seabed is much more congested, so there needs to be a lot of communication to other stakeholders to um, avoid any uh, yeah, interference with other projects or, or planned infrastructure like pipelines, power cables as well. As the seabed becomes increasingly congested with more and more infrastructure and more and more users, the chances of conflict, shall we say, as in multiple users overlapping with each other or something inadvertently going wrong, that uh, that chance increases. That's not to say that some wind farms don't have exclusion zones around them, many do. But of course, you can imagine in the years to come when entire swathes of seabed do become occupied by offshore wind infrastructure, even though those assets are identified, they are marked, and in many cases, other vessels are encouraged to stay away. So this really does need good understanding of what the seafloor looks like, a really good understanding of who's using the seafloor, the processes that are in place, um, and, and good dialogue between the different stakeholders and governments and regulators that are involved. As Michael Clare explains, this has been a focus for the ICPC and for the industry as a whole. Well, one of the, the, the taglines of the ICPC is, is sharing the seabed in harmony with others, and, and that's a really key part of it. There's this 
proposals in some places for cable protection corridors, which might mean that you lay cables there and those areas are avoided for fishing. This may be very positive, but if we go back to the point about diversity of cable routes, we don't just necessarily want to route all the cables within one specific area, because if they are subject to some damage by a big storm or some accidental human activity, for example, then, then suddenly you have a kind of a pinch point there. There is potential for data from one survey to be used to inform future projects, even when these involve different uses of the seabed. Some of this data is publicly shared. So the Offshore wind farms feed into the same or very similar databases that other seabed infrastructure does, such as telecoms, cables and, and oil and gas pipelines. So once they're, they're laid, they're installed, their positions are accurately mapped, charted and shared with the wider world. And certainly as new wind farms are developed, they need to refer to the same sources of information just to understand the types of infrastructure they could encounter when they're laying their own export cables, for example, which pipelines already exist, which other telecoms cables run nearby, because the wind farm developer has to engage with those asset owners themselves to ensure that the installation and the maintenance and the monitoring and inspection can be undertaken on an agreed regime. Geospecialists like Fugro collect more detailed data, but commercial sensitivities can limit how widely it can be shared. If there are trends or models that we can develop to help people understand similar conditions elsewhere, then we see that as an opportunity to accelerate the development and also shorten development timelines too. New technology can help map the seabed and monitor the condition of cables at increasingly high resolutions. This can include 4K video as well as the detailed data from cable sensing. Satellite internet can be used to feed this information in real time to experts onshore. AI is beginning to be used to help analyse this information. As we make use of more and more of the ocean, the cable industry will need to adapt to new technologies. It will have to work with other stakeholders to share data and access to the seabed. And it will need to work with governments to streamline international cooperation. Cables are vital to our modern economy, but from the start, they have also helped us understand the ocean. The first ever evidence of complex life that we had scientifically in the deep sea came from those first cable surveys. We discovered things like the, the, the ridges in the middle of the Atlantic actually existed. Today's techniques offer far more detailed insights, but require new methods of analysis. The data volume that you're bringing back because you're making measurements across a really bro broadband, it, it, it could be terabytes in a very, very short period of time. So what you need is to think about how do you do stuff with those data? And this is where kind of big data, artificial intelligence, those sorts of algorithms and those developments in data science are critically needed. Looking at stuff across a really big bandwidth, across a really precise temporal and spatial resolution. But if we can tease stuff out of those data, we can get data that's useful for cable protection, but also probably make fundamental ocean discoveries of processes we didn't even know existed in the first place. And scientists are already making some astonishing discoveries. 
in places like the Svalbard archipelago, linking Norway with the North Pole. Yeah, I, I think some of the work that needs to be done going forward is, is kind of fingerprinting those signals. So there'll be some things that we know what they sound like, and there's some things that we don't quite know what they sound like. So these kind of ocean soundscapes uh, are, are fascinating. And I think some of the work that's been done uh, offshore Svalbard uh, along some of the cables that are installed there, they don't just detect whales, they can detect species, they can detect the sex of, of whales and the different types of calls, whether they're mating or whether they're feeding calls. And this is fascinating because it means that we can gather this data in real time as well without having to deploy, say, a hydrophone and, and then go back and get that information. And these approaches could one day be used to provide warning of landslides, earthquakes and tsunamis that threaten lives and communities, as well as cables. I'm amazed at what's been possible over the past few years, and I think going forwards, it will be remarkable what is what is possible. You know, we, we've gone from maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the first papers trickling out to say you can detect an earthquake, to now we can locate where those earthquakes are in the world. And and the cable offshore Tonga, there's a a, a paper um, which which hopefully will be published soon, led by uh, Tokyo University which has made these distributed acoustic sensing measurements along the domestic cable uh, that was damaged at Tonga. So during the period before the repair happened, they made measurements and they recorded very low magnitude earthquakes, and one of which came from underneath the volcano itself. So for uh, remote island states like Tonga and, and other areas in the South Pacific, where there are very few, or indeed in some cases, no seismic monitoring stations, these cables provide the opportunity to fundamentally fill some of those gaps in, in monitoring. So whether you could use them for detecting tsunamis uh, to, to provide an early warning system, to identify the unrest before an eruption like the 2022 uh, eruption of Hunga Volcano. Uh, we, we had no real forewarning that it was going to be as big as it was. But if we were making measurements along the cable, then maybe we would have been able to get some warning. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Rian Owen, and by Johnny Dowling. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And a high-resolution survey of our operational performance is provided by Rory Harris. Special thanks to our partner for this episode, Fugro. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media and on LinkedIn. 